If you have never read a book by Jerry Jenkins, you're kind of in the minority. <laughs> Just think, 21 of his 200 books are now New York Times bestsellers. This week on The Land and the Book, he joins us to talk about the Dead Sea Chronicles. It's a journey into Saudi Arabia, of all things, and along the way, we'll discover lessons Jerry has learned in the Middle East. Plus, he shares helpful insights for budding writers. You'll love the devotional Charlie Dyer shares, and we're going to bring you up to date on all the news stories from the Middle East, all ahead. Welcome to the Land of the Book. Again, our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and Charlie, you know, you wonder what God really cares about. If you were to try to make a list, it would be a long one for sure. But there's one thing that we often forget he cares about, and that's the Jewish people. We see throughout Scripture that he cares deeply about their physical preservation and their eternal salvation. That's right, John, and that's why our friends at Life and Messiah have spent 135 years sharing God's heart for the Jewish people, both by proclaiming the gospel to them and by equipping others to do the same. This month, they're offering you a special ebook titled Sharing God's Heart. This 30-day devotional will help connect you with God's heart for His precious people. The articles, written by Life and Messiah staff, provide insight into Jewish life and culture and prepare you so that you too can reach our Jewish friends with the gospel they so desperately need. To receive this 30-day devotional, visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up today to receive your free gift. Time now to take a look at current events from the Middle East, with our first story being Israel's election. It's coming Tuesday. How have the last-minute campaign strategies unfolded for each of the major parties? Oh, John, you know, just like here in the States, truth and politics often struggle to coexist. And that's why you need to take some of the headlines and stories this past week in Israel with a healthy dose of salt. For example, the mayor of Nazareth said Benjamin Netanyahu had been in touch with Arab-Israeli leaders about potentially cooperating with the Islamist Ra'am party after the election. But a Likud party spokesman called the story a complete lie. And the reality is, we don't know the truth. Netanyahu has been courting Arab voters, so this could be a story designed to attract them to vote for Likud. But it could also be designed to scare Arab voters into supporting Lapid or the other Arab parties. Uh, several editorials appeared this week raising fears about the rise of the far-right parties in the election and warning that a Netanyahu victory and an alliance with those parties will spell the end of democracy in Israel. Fear, it seems, is being used by all sides to try and encourage their supporters to get out and vote. Yair Lapid said, if this gang gets into power, they'll make every effort to destroy Israeli democracy, cancel all the authority of the courts, and destroy the separation of powers in Israel. In contrast, Netanyahu has characterized the parties opposing him as being a leftist danger to Israel's very survival. Lapid's party has been climbing in the polls, but it seems to be at the expense of the left-wing Labour and Moretz parties that are already part of his coalition. They then in turn criticized him for his irresponsible campaign and said it could make Netanyahu prime minister should one of them fail to pass the voter threshold. Now, in a surprise move, the different Arab factions couldn't agree on a surplus ballot vote sharing. That's a system where parties share their excess votes to uh, gain an extra Knesset seat rather than having them go to waste. The failure to reach an agreement shows the level of distrust within the different Arab parties, which could hurt their overall representation in the Knesset. Uh, the country's so evenly divided that the final makeup of the Knesset will likely be decided by the parties that are most successful in their get-out-the-vote campaigns. 
You know, should one of the left-wing or Arab parties fail to garner enough votes to cross the minimum threshold? Well, that could enable Netanyahu and his coalition partners to gain enough votes to form a government. A poll by one television station claimed that 78% of the Netanyahu bloc supporters intend to actually go out and vote, compared to 72% of those who back parties in the current coalition bloc. Now, in just a few days, we'll know whether the surveys, polls, and pundits have had their finger on the pulse of Israel's voters, or if there will be an election night surprise. And as we've said before, once the election's over, well, the real campaign to form the different parties into a workable coalition begins. As the war between Russia and Ukraine drags on, Israel is finding it more difficult to keep from getting involved. Why has Israel not shown more support for Ukraine up till now, many are asking, and and could that soon change? Well, Israel's finding it difficult to remain relatively neutral in the conflict in spite of pressure uh, being placed on them by Ukraine and, to a lesser extent, by the U.S. and Europe. But there are several reasons why Israel has tried to keep away from taking sides. The primary reason is their fear that Russia will retaliate by making it more difficult for Israel to attack Iranian weapons convoys and positions in Syria. A recent report said Israel has stopped over 90% of the weapons shipments sent from Iran to Syria and Lebanon, and Israel wants that record to continue. Russia has criticized Israel for the modest level of support they have shown to Ukraine and the limited criticism of Russia that they've also made. Now, Israel's trying to keep from getting into a shooting war of their own with Russian forces in Syria. Israel also has a concern about sharing some of their more advanced weapon systems like Iron Dome or David's Sling with Ukraine, lest Russian forces capture one of those systems and then share the information about it with Iran. And finally, Israel's concern that providing military assistance to Ukraine could lead to a rise in anti-Semitism within Russia. Israel has offered to provide Ukraine with a rocket and drone alert system, but Defense Secretary Gantz said Israel would not supply weapons. However, as Russia connects more closely with Iran and relies more heavily on them for weapons, Israel might be forced to take a more active role in helping Ukraine. The concern is that Iran is using Ukraine as a testing ground for drones and missiles that they hope eventually to use against Israel. Uh, Israel might need to test out its own defensive weapons to make sure they're designed to take on whatever Iran eventually chooses to use against them. That's Middle East expert Dr. Charlie Dyer working us through a list of uh, news stories from the Middle East. I'm Middle East amateur John Geiger, as curious as you are as to the answer to some of these issues. Story number three being a British historian claiming that Solomon was not the king of Israel, but was instead an Egyptian pharaoh. On what basis has he made these claims, and is there any validity to his arguments? Yeah, this British historian made this rather bombastic claim in a new book, and he titled it Solomon, Pharaoh of Egypt. Now, he bases his claim on the fact that even though the Bible describes Solomon as having been incredibly wealthy, no trace of his gold or other wealth has been discovered in Israel. So his solution is to accept the reality of a ruler with great wealth, but then transfer that ruler from Israel to Egypt. As he says in the book, we either have to accept the fact that the Torah is completely fictional or realize that we're looking in the wrong place after the wrong things. He says Solomon's treasures can be found in the Egyptian museum in Cairo. Hmm. Now, as to the validity of those arguments, well, there is none. There's nothing in the Bible or in Egyptian history that connects the events of Solomon's life with the events of a pharaoh in Egypt. The author's main problem is that we haven't discovered Solomon's wealth. But 
The Bible itself explains why. You know, in 1 Kings 14, 25 and 26, uh, the Bible talks about Solomon's foolish son, Rehoboam, and it says, in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Israel. He carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. Hmm. He took everything, including all this gold shields Solomon had made. So Solomon's wealth was looted by Egypt following his death. By the way, the same thing happened in Egypt. You know, the greatest wealth in the Cairo Museum is that of King Tut, who was a very minor pharaoh. And it was found because the entrance to his relatively small tomb was covered over before it could be looted. So the wealth of other greater pharaohs is also missing. That doesn't mean they didn't exist. Israel and Judah were plundered multiple times, starting with Egypt, but then Assyria and Babylon, and those countries carried off the wealth. So this ends up being a case where a historian has made an unsubstantiated claim that has no basis in historical fact. Uh, The Bible presents a very reasonable explanation of why Solomon's wealth hasn't been found, at least in Israel. Christmas is still two months away, but the Turkish government is apparently trying to get a jump on the season by announcing that the tomb of Santa Claus, or St. Nicholas, has been uncovered. So what's the real story behind St. Nick? Yeah, when I saw this account, I thought of the editorial back in the New York Sun in 1897. Yes, Virginia, there is a St. Nick. But of course, he wasn't the jolly old elf in a red suit riding a sleigh pulled by eight tiny reindeer. He's actually known as St. Nicholas of Myra, and he lived in what's today the town of Demre in southwest Turkey. Now, very little is known about him, but several legends about him grew up centuries following his death. Uh, He was the bishop there, and he was imprisoned during the persecution of Diocletian. Apparently, he also attended the First Church Council of Nicaea, and the legend is that he was known for secret gift-giving, which is how he's been transitioned into Santa Claus. But to the point of the story, an excavation team unearthed the exact place where his tomb was located in the town of Demra. Uh, The church there was built in 520 AD on the foundations of an older Christian church where he'd served as bishop. And that's the place that's now been unearthed by these archaeologists. Unfortunately, we can't go there to see the remains of St. Nick because uh, his body was actually taken away by Catholic merchants to the town of Bari in southern Italy, and then later part of it was moved into uh, Venice. So uh, today you go to Demery to see the tomb, but if you want to see St. Nick, you have to head to Italy. And that's a look at current events from the Middle East. Thank you, Charlie. Coming up on The Land of the Book, a conversation with Jerry Jenkins. Next. She's the first woman to be awarded a permit to lead a dig in Saudi Arabia. Archaeologist Nicole Berman believes what she hopes to discover has the power to rewrite history. But the team that she's assembled may well betray her. What then? Welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, an unusual conversation coming up here on the program. But let's pause right now first and think for a moment about creative ways to share Christ with a Jewish friend. Check this out. An awful lot of conversations between Christians and their Jewish friends never happen. Sometimes, I think, because we are so busy focusing on the things that we don't share in common, we forget the common cultural values that we do share. Roy Schwartz of Chosen People Ministries joins us in studio. What's an important common cultural value that might be a jumping-off point in a discussion? Well, I think the fact that we both believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a common value. Um, You know, Jesus said, if they love the Father, they will love me. Mm -hmm. Well, most Jewish people don't know the Father. 
and so are not able to love him. However, we who have come to Jesus have fallen in love with the Father. And so uh, Paul writes that God called uh, the gospel to be brought to the nations so that the nations could provoke the Jewish people to jealousy. And what we provoke them to is jealousy for the God of Israel. And when we have that understanding, uh, we can share with them uh, our love and appreciation for the God of Israel, sharing uh, things that we've gleaned from Isaiah, things that we've gleaned from Genesis or Uh, For me, probably one of the greatest things that led me to faith was meeting Gentiles who had a greater understanding of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob than I did. Hmm. And I was raised in the Orthodox tradition. And yet, here were Gentiles who who were like a first-name basis with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's Roy Schwartz with Chosen People Ministries. You know, you mentioned uh, this issue of Genesis and Isaiah, and I comment to myself how surprised I am when I go to Israel and I see all these scripture references boldly. Well, yeah, the Old Testament is something we also share in common, big time. Yes, it sure is. And uh, as we share those things, as we share the common roots of our faith, uh, those are the things that can plant seeds that can lead to life. Well, encouraging you to plant a seed in the life of your Jewish friend, I'm John Geiger with The Land and the Book. If you have never read a book written by Jerry Jenkins, you're in the minority. I mean, with 21 New York Times bestsellers, seven of those starting out at number one, over 200 books, over 73 million copies sold, he's become one of the most commercially successful writers of our time. Jerry Jenkins' writing has also appeared in magazines like Time, Reader's Digest, Parade, and many others. And his books have sold over 73 million copies. So he knows just a thing or two about writing. It's great to reconnect today on The Land of the Book. Thanks for fitting us in, Jerry. Always good to be with you, John. Thanks. So let me ask you straight off the bat, since we're a program about the Middle East, how has traveling to Israel, for you, sparked your interest in biblical archaeology? Well, it's been a huge thing for me. Um, We've been over there three times, which doesn't sound like much compared to people like Charlie Dyer and maybe you and many others, but every time is a rich experience. And, uh, you know, the first time you go, you just get overwhelmed by how compact the place is. When you read scripture, you're wondering, how long does it take to walk from Bethany to Bethlehem or to Jerusalem or whatever? And you realize this was a a small area, but had to be a really difficult time in the the first century, especially just getting around. So I'm curious, when you make these trips, uh, are you making notes in a notebook of some kind or using an app like Evernote, or is it pretty much just mental snapshots where you're tucking things away that maybe later work themselves into some of your writings? Well, now you're getting into uh, age, uh, because the first time we went uh, was half a lifetime ago, and uh, I don't remember taking too many notes, and I remembered every detail. Mm. And uh, now when I go, uh, I have to to either record on my phone or take a lot of notes and and ask Diana to help me remember because the memory's not what it used to be. Mm. Uh, there's so much to take in. And uh, last time I went, I went with Dr. Craig Evans, a prophet at Houston Baptist Seminary, who's been my biblical consultant on the, the Dead Sea Rising books and uh, Dead Sea Rising and Dead Sea Conspiracy. And he shows me dig sites and, and plus being a Bible scholar uh, explains what really went on back in you know four thousand years ago in that area and that type of thing. So 
I, I love those experiences and I love learning and I uh, feel like I'm kind of going to the Craig Evans seminary when he's there. <laughs> well, for somebody new to the world of biblical archaeology, what are the Dead Sea Scrolls and just why are they such a big deal for Christians? Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the 1940s and uh, they really have just shown that some of the original scriptures are there and, and people have, um, the people who copied those and and, uh, shared them back then. We never thought we'd see such relics that are so compelling. And um, it's just something that I think many Christians, when they they read these and when they see the commentators and the people who know know, how to decipher the stuff, this is probably the most amazing archaeological find in history for people who believe the Bible and and are people of faith. And uh, that's the thing I I try to make my character, Nicole Berman, as you mentioned, um, you know, she wants to dig in Saudi Arabia, and, and her father has sort of raised her talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls and how important they are. And um, even though her dig is not near where the, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, that's sort of her motivation. She's saying, if I can find something similar to that, that uh, speaks to the truth of what Ishmael and uh, Isaac went through and what their father taught them, uh, it could change the face of Middle East relations even today and the uh, impact that uh, Islam and Judaism and Christianity have on each other. You know, they in many ways have been at enmity. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's saying there there may be evidence that, that these sons of Abraham were charged with getting along, not with warring with each other. And um, that makes for the fun part of the contemporary side of this story. And, uh, and I had great fun uh, just examining that. Jerry Jenkins has been steeped in the craft of writing for more than 40 years. 21 New York Times bestsellers, over 200 books, 73 million copies sold. We're talking to him today in a conversation that's based on his newest novel, Dead Sea Conspiracy. It's the second in a series. What's the, the larger uh, view of Dead Sea Chronicles, Jerry? Well, basically, it's, uh, you know, we, we've got this character. The idea actually came to me from the publisher. Uh, usually, I turn down ideas from the outside because, you know, we novelists like to write our own ideas. And, yeah. and uh, I feel like I've got more ideas than I've got years left to write. But uh, Worthy Publisher suggested a, a novel with an archaeologist as a main character. And I, I remember telling them, you know, I'm not a scholar or a theologian but I am a, a lover of scripture and, mm-hmm. and, a, and I'm a storyteller. So what I would need to write, uh, I, I was really intrigued by the idea of an archeologist as a character, but I would need a, a great consultant to help yes. me with that. And that's why they hooked me up with Dr. Evans. But her story is that, you know, being in her late thirties, being a woman, being a messianic Christian, uh, she's got everything going against her trying yes. to get a permit to dig in a, in a Muslim yeah. country. And even if she finds something that does corroborate our scripture, what will they think about that? That's what adds the conflict to the story and and uh, why it made it so much fun for me to write from her perspective. Well, opening up the book, I, uh, I found that it contains some great parallel scenes with some biblical characters. Uh, for example, I was fascinated by a conversation with Noah's son, Shem, and his wife, and Abram. Uh, several questions come to my mind. How did you arrive at the math necessary to support such a scene, so it wouldn't be out of the question from a timeline standpoint. That's that's question one. Yeah, that was uh, something that really surprised me, too. I got a, a biblical chart that showed the ages of the patriarchs, and I realized that 
Noah was even alive for about 50 years into Abraham's life, I decided that it might be a little bit sketchy to try to have him interact directly with Abraham because he'd be so old at that point. But uh, Shem was just a mere 500 years old or so, and so he was sort of middle-aged. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, so I have Abraham's mother take him on a long journey to visit Shem and hear about the uh, times on the ark firsthand. Um, that biblical chart is really amazing to see how long the patriarchs lived and how many of them overlapped. And uh, uh, every other chapter, I go back 4,000 years to the time of Abraham and his parents and it, you know, his father, according to Scripture, was a pantheist for a long time uh, before coming to believe in the one true God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, in addition to his novels, Jerry Jenkins' writing has appeared in magazines like Time, Reader's Digest, Parade, and many others. We're talking with him today about Dead Sea Conspiracy, the second in a series of novels. What safeguards do you set up in crafting the dialogue to make sure these biblical characters remain uh, well, biblical. Yeah, I, I take it very seriously, the, the idea that you're not to add to or take away from the gospel. So as far as the, the Christian message, the gospel message, that's going to be uh, exactly the way you see it in Scripture. And then I try to make everything that uh, that I'm imagining. I'm trying to say, uh, here's what may have happened to lead up to this biblical event. I want to make that credible. I want to make it authentic. I want people to say, I realize that's not necessarily in Scripture, but it could have happened this way. This is a fictional construct, and, and the readers have been gracious to allow me, I think, that artistic license mm. and, uh, and enjoy that imagining. For listeners with an interest in writing biblical fiction, what counsel would you offer them in the research phase? Well, there's really hardly any substitute for being there. Um, you really do need to visit the Holy Land. I know people have written without doing that, and there, there were times, I think, real early in my career when I tried that. But then you get over there and, and realize you need to breathe that air. You need to feel mm. that heat and, and walk in that dust and see the just the scope of the place. And then just feel what the Spirit does to you when you're actually in, in the places where, where Jesus walked, where the patriarchs walked, you know, even Old Testament people. You really need to do a lot of research and uh you can't fake it. That's all there is to it. Okay, let's say you've done that, and yet you still need some more insight. I notice you have been to the Holy Land three times, as you've said, and yet you still felt the need to enlist the support of Dr. Craig Evans, your biblical consultant. What about the role of using someone like that? How, how much do you recommend that? Well, he's been a real godsend to me. He's the smartest guy in the room, no matter what the room. And uh, he also has the ability to keep those cookies on a lower shelf where relay people can reach him. But I, I find it very important. Um, you know, if you're a seminary grad, that's one thing. Uh, I don't happen to be. Uh, I went to Bible school and I was raised in the church, and so I know the Bible, you know, as a layman, and I believe it and I love it. But to really get into the depths of it and make sure you're you're on track theologically, I, I do think you need somebody who who has really uh, been called to make it their life to study the scriptures. We're talking with Jerry Jenkins today here on The Land and the Book, his novel, Dead Sea Conspiracy. Fiction, of course, is a sweet spot for you, Jerry. Uh, that said, what kind of impact do you envision a book like this having on readers? Do you have a goal behind all of this, in addition to just sort of uh, spinning a great story and having fun doing it? Yeah, I do feel like it's important that the story be king, because people need to keep turning the pages. But 
and I, I don't want to overwhelm them with a, a message because it might sound sermonic, but there is always something between the lines. And I find this even true with general market writers who have no faith background or and aren't writing about spiritual things. It seems to me every novelist has a message, and I definitely do. My worldview is a, is a worldview of hope. So if there are characters in, in this book that are lost, they don't just all miraculously come to faith. That wouldn't be realistic. I like to have credible, skeptical characters so that readers who are not people of faith could say, yeah, that's my question, too. And I, I would ask the same thing. and I would be skeptical. And then I think the most important thing is, is just to, for my readers, I want them to come away, if they're not people of faith, to see that there are credible people of faith and there are things that they can believe in and, and questions they should ask. And for people who share my faith, I want them to be encouraged and, and see characters that are flawed and have weaknesses and still have questions and uh, not have everything tied up in a neat bow. So that's what I want them to take away is that uh, there's something real here, even though this is a fictional story that they can enjoy. What's ahead in this series? Any previews for us? Well, it all depends on the success of, of this uh, second title. To be fully honest, the first book in this series started a little slow, and I didn't think there was going to be a second. Hmm. And I thought, that's okay. You know, yeah. some make it and some don't, and, you know, people like certain things and not others. And all of a sudden, that, that first one took off, and the publisher came back and said, we're ready for book two. And so I was thrilled to, to do it again, uh, hoping that happens with this one. It'd be fun to, uh, because my character is, as I say, just in her late 30s, there's lots of life to go and, and many <laughs> other places she can dig. So that'd be fun. All right. We'll hope for more adventures with Nicole. Jerry, thank you for your time. Always great to connect. Thanks, Jen. Good to be with you. And we'll have a link to the book, Dead Sea Conspiracy, at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Thelandandthebook.org. Questions and answers next with Charlie Dyer here on The Land and the Book. Thank you for being a part of the Land of the Book family. We know you've got choices out there in what you listen to, and it's an honor to have you on board today. I'm John Geiger, and our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, is about to do what, Charlie? Uh, answer questions. I love it. It's like saying, <laughs> sick them to a dog, as I've said. Uh, people have questions, and when one person asks it, there's usually a score of people who have the same question. So this is fun for me. All right. Well, here's a question. What does God really care about? Now, obviously, uh, if you were to list it out, it would be a long list, but there's one thing that we often forget he cares about, and that's the Jewish people. Uh, we see throughout Scripture that he cares deeply about their physical preservation and their eternal salvation. Yeah, and that's why our friends at Life and Messiah have spent 135 years sharing God's heart for the Jewish people, both by proclaiming the gospel to them and by equipping others to do the same. This month, they're offering you a special ebook titled Sharing God's Heart. This 30-day devotional will help connect you with God's heart for His precious people. The articles, written by Life and Messiah staff, provide insight into Jewish life and culture and prepare you so that you too can reach our Jewish friends with the gospel they so desperately need. To receive this 30-day devotional, visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up today to receive your free gift. And today's first question is from Doug and Sally. They take us to Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, uh, have God saying that even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were all in a sinful country, their righteousness would only save them. 
not the others in that country. So their question has to do with Daniel's name being included in this group of righteous men. Could you shed some light on the timeline? Aren't Ezekiel and Daniel contemporaries during the Babylonian captivity? Yeah, I like this question because I love the book of Ezekiel and, and Daniel. And Indeed, Ezekiel and Daniel were contemporaries in Babylon. Ezekiel was living among the exiles, it says, by the Kibar River, while Daniel was living in the palace of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, in the section around Ezekiel 14, where this passage is, uh, the prophet's addressing the different reasons the people in exile didn't believe Judah and Jerusalem would be judged. Now, in these particular verses, they felt God wouldn't judge the nation because there were righteous individuals still interceding and asking God to spare the country. And their ace in the hole, so to speak, was Daniel. Uh, They must have heard reports of his incredible wisdom and righteousness, and they felt sure God had placed him in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar to intercede on behalf of the nation. Uh, Their thinking probably went something like this. God won't destroy Jerusalem because righteous Daniel is there in the royal palace. He'll keep Nebuchadnezzar from doing such a thing. Now, to answer, Ezekiel picked three very specific individuals known for their righteousness. Noah was a righteous man, but the only individuals he could save from God's judgment were his family. Job was a righteous man, and he wasn't even able to save his own family. However, at the end of the book, he did intercede for his friends to spare them. But God now says that even if both of those men, along with Daniel, were to join together in prayer, they wouldn't be able to save even their own family members. Only they themselves would be spared in God's coming judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, Noah and Job were long gone, but Daniel was very much alive. And Ezekiel's point was that even if Daniel were to plead and ask God and Nebuchadnezzar to spare Jerusalem, it wouldn't stop the coming judgment. Now, Doug and Sally followed up with another question here. How long would Daniel have been in the courts of King Nebuchadnezzar, including the three years of training, uh, by the time Ezekiel wrote chapter 14? Well, we know Daniel was taken into Babylonian captivity in 605 BC, during the very first of Nebuchadnezzar's three invasions of the land of Judah. Uh, Daniel's three-year course of study uh, corresponded with Nebuchadnezzar's accession year and the first two official years of his reign. So he began serving in Nebuchadnezzar's palace uh, by the summer or fall of 602 BC. Now that's five years before Ezekiel arrived. In 597 is when Ezekiel went as part of the second deportation by Nebuchadnezzar. And according to Ezekiel 1.1, Ezekiel was called as a prophet on July 31, 593 BC, four years after he arrived. Now, since his prophecies are in chronological order, uh, that means the events of chapter 14, uh, that last question, took place sometime between uh, 592 and 591 B.C. So uh, here's, the, here's the bottom line for it all. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar put Daniel in a high position and made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and put him in charge of all his wise men. Uh, and he was there about nine years before Ezekiel ever began prophesying. You're listening to The Land and the Book. It's a one-hour flyover of the Middle East from Moody Radio with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Middle East expert. I'm John Geiger, and we're looking at questions that folks have emailed us. Maybe it's one of yours today. Ramesh says, why did the half-tribe of Manasseh get a big chunk of inheritance land on both sides of the Jordan River in the book of Joshua? I'm curious. We're not told directly, but when you look at a map, you, you might say to yourself, boy, it does look like Manasseh and then Ephraim, their, their brother tribe, certainly cleaned up in the lottery for uh, land. But uh, here's the part we need to understand. Uh, the total area allotted doesn't necessarily correspond to population or habitable land. You know, some land was marginal and it was just suited for grazing or not even for agriculture. Uh, even today, a great deal of the land that was allotted to Manasseh is sparsely populated because it was marginal and had marginal rainfall. 
uh, some of the land was occupied by Canaanites and they didn't want to leave and they resisted their attempts at conquest. In fact, Joshua and the writer of Judges focus on problems faced by the tribe of Manasseh. Uh, Some of Manasseh's territory contained cities, but they were given to the tribe of Ephraim. So apparently not all the land given to Manasseh actually belonged to them. And finally, a great deal of the land was, at least initially, heavily wooded and not suitable for farming or grazing. In fact, the people of Ephraim and Manasseh complained to Joshua about the land available in Joshua chapter 17. And I find Joshua's response enlightening. He says, you will have not only one allotment, but forest and hill country as well. Clear it, and its farthest limits will be yours. And though the Canaanites have iron chariots and though they're strong, you can drive them out. So in other words, he says, hey, look, I know most of the land might be in forested areas, and I know a lot of the land is controlled by the Canaanites, but get busy, boys, you can do it. (laughs) Uh, Their inheritance looks like a large chunk of land on a map, but the actual amount of acreage available, at least initially, was much smaller. Mary is troubled by an author she read who spoke of God leaving his people for a time due to disobedience and used the book of Hosea. And then he seemed to speak of God leaving the church. But isn't the believer indwelt by the Holy Spirit today? The Spirit left Saul, and David prayed in Psalm 51 that God would not take the Holy Spirit from him. But that was in the Old Testament. So can God leave a church or a believer today because of disobedience? Yeah, and I'm not familiar with that individual or the book that you mentioned in your email, but I did look them up online. Uh, The author appears to be connected to a school that's uh, rather reformed and doesn't see a distinction between Israel and the church. And I assume that does impact his interpretation and application of Old Testament passages like Hosea and Psalm 51. Now, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit didn't universally indwell believers. The Spirit's enablement could be removed, and that's what happened in the life of King Saul. And that's why David prayed in Psalm 51 and asked that God not take away his spirit. But in the church age, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is universal in the sense that all believers are indwelt. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 uh, says that we're all baptized by one spirit into one body. And Jesus told us he would never leave us nor forsake us in Hebrews 13. He promised that we would never perish because no one can take us out of his hand in John 10. So uh, if the author was applying passages like Hosea or Psalm 51 in a way that suggests God's spirit can leave us because of disobedience, well, I'd question that. However, it's also possible he might have been just suggesting God was withholding his blessing or even chastising his followers for disobedience. And of course, that is true. But without having access to the book or video, I need to guard against being too critical here. It's questions and answers on the land and the book with our host, Charlie Dyer. Rose says, in reading Ezekiel 28 in the Net Bible, it says, I will reveal my sovereign power then has a note on the verse that says, or reveal my holiness. And that got me to thinking, does God's holiness stem from his sovereignty or is it a chicken or the egg type of scenario? Your perspective is really appreciated. Yeah, and I'm not sure how the Net Bible, which is a good translation. I know many of those who did the translation work on it, but I'm not sure how they arrived at reveal my sovereign power for that verse. Uh, The verb used is rather technical. It's a nifal form of the verb kadash. Kadash has the idea of sanctify or set apart or consecrate. And that nifal form has the idea of to show oneself sacred or holy. And that's why the New American Standard and the ESV render it, I will manifest my holiness. And the NIV has, I will show myself holy. And that's probably the best translation of that word. Now, it's true God is sovereign. He's all powerful. But that's not really the meaning of the word used in this verse. And I think this is actually a good illustration of why I think it's important to have multiple versions of the Bible alongside you as you study God's word. 
Ashley often hears us talking about archaeological digs in our news segment and wants to know how long does it take to get the information from an archaeological dig site in Israel? Longer than I wish. I'm constantly checking news sources to find information, but it's usually dependent on when the individual in charge of the dig you know, either chooses to issue a press release or make a public announcement or present a progress report at a scholarly gathering. Now, some archaeologists are better than others at reporting their finds. It's often done in the fall, you know, just after the dig closed for the summer, or in the winter, you know, at a professional society meeting, or in the early spring, usually to promote their next season's dig in hopes of raising volunteers and funds. Mm -hmm. Sadly, it can take years for the final report on a site to be listed. Now, two of the best sources are Israeli newspapers like the Times of Israel or the Jerusalem Post or Haaretz. Uh, And the other source uh, is Biblical Archaeology Review. Uh, The papers carry press releases, and Barr usually reports on conference presentations and publishes some of the preliminary field reports that are now required by the Israeli government. Don't you go away. Charlie Dyer's devotional is next on The Land and the Book. It is lesson one in the book of the Christian walk. Sin always has consequences. I'm John Geiger. This is the Land of the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. Our devotional coming up illustrates that truth with astounding clarity. Charlie, you're going to take us uh, where? Well, I'm going to take you to my favorite place in Israel, John. All right. I think I know what that might be, but let's save that secret. Uh, First, let's hear this Holy Land experience. Somebody who's been there to Israel and now comes back with these perspectives. You asked us to call if we had been to Israel. We just returned from Israel. We went uh, with a group from our church, College Park Church in Indianapolis. We had a fabulous experience, and I have to tell you that I did not want to go. When we met the people that were leading the tour, I said, Hi, my name's Jill, and I don't want to go. So they had to, had to do a hard sell for me, but I will tell you that it really was a phenomenal trip. And the highlight for me was being on the Sea of Galilee and actually walking where Jesus walked. It was um, just an incredible experience. And I would recommend it to anyone, and I never for one moment felt unsafe. Even as we stood on the Syrian border, I never felt unsafe. So I recommend it so much. You've got to do it. It has to be on your bucket list. Thank you. For anybody who has ever said, I wish I could go to Israel. I wish I could, but I can't afford it. Or maybe there's health issues and and you're never going to get there. Uh, Don't despair. Charlie Dyer's devotional up next will make you feel like you're there. You know, now, Charlie, up front, we said that sin always has consequences. And, you know, it's amazing, though, how we how we just let that elude us when we make choices that sometimes do lead us into sin. It is. Sin has consequences, and thankfully, the grace of God is greater than all our sin, which uh, both of those are going to be true in this lesson today. So now, let's start. Watch your step. Take your time. The climb to the top of this hill will definitely get your heart pumping, but once you get to the top, the view will take your breath away. And here we are, my favorite place in all Israel. The valley right below us is the Wadi Kilt. Now, don't get too close to the edge. It's several hundred feet down to the valley floor, and we don't want to lose you. There's so much I want to talk about today, but I need to begin with some geography. Look down the valley to where it ends. See that patch of green? You're looking into the Jordan Valley and Jericho. 
we're actually standing at the biblical border that separated the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The border curved to the north and west from the Dead Sea, going just south of Jericho. It then went up from the Valley of Achor and went past a place said to be opposite the ascent of Adumim, which is on the south of the valley. Well, the gorge below us seems to be the valley Joshua is describing, and he calls it the Valley of Achor, which means Valley of Trouble. <laughs> and as you look down at it, it definitely looks like a place that spells trouble for anyone trying to get across. But that's not how the valley got its name. The name was given earlier in the book of Joshua. Israel had just entered the land and defeated the inhabitants of Jericho. Things were going well when a man named Achan decided it was okay to bend God's rules just a little. God had commanded Israel to totally destroy Jericho and take nothing. But Achan came across some treasure too good to pass up, a beautiful garment, five pounds of silver, and a little over a pound of gold. I have so little and God has so much. He won't mind if I take this, will he? Well, that little sin cost Israel the death of 36 soldiers when they tried to take the city of Ai and discovered God was no longer there to help. The nation gathered before God. Achan's sin was discovered, and he and his family were put to death. Why all his family? Well, because he had hidden the loot in the family tent. In today's legalese, they were co-conspirators in his plot. And the valley below us, where their bodies were buried, was then named the Valley of Achor the valley of trouble. But I didn't bring you up here to talk about boundaries or conspiracies or even the impact sin has on a person or a family or a community. Instead, I want us to turn from the past to the future. Look out over this valley and imagine the entire sweep of Israel's history. David passed along this valley as he fled from Absalom. The last king of Judah, Zedekiah, fled by this valley as he tried to get away from the Babylonians, only to be captured on the plains of Jericho. Jesus spent 40 days being tempted here by Satan. All through history, this valley has lived up to its name, the Valley of Trouble. And that's why the words of the prophets Hosea and Isaiah are so dramatic. Both lived at the same time and prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Both predicted the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel, and both saw the valley spread out below as a symbol of hope. The prophet Hosea takes the northern kingdom of Israel on a roller coaster ride of peaks and valleys as he repeats the recurring themes of sin, judgment, and restoration. In chapter 2, Hosea pictured Israel's sin, followed by God's announcement of judgment. But midway through the chapter, a dramatic change takes place. Hosea describes a new exodus, a time when God will bring Israel into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. And the results will be dramatically different from the time when Israel first came into the land. Then I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. A new exodus a new entry into the land, and a totally different result. The Valley of Achor, the Valley of Trouble, with its pile of stones marking Israel's first instance of disobedience in the land, will someday become a doorway of hope, a place where the people will return both to the land and to their God. It'll be a time, Hosea says, when God will betroth Israel to himself forever, and they will know the Lord. 
Hosea's amazing prophecy is then echoed by the prophet Isaiah. The final chapters of Isaiah's amazing book look forward to the ultimate restoration of Israel to the land. In Isaiah 65, God announces, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and an heir of my mountains from Judah. Even my chosen one shall inherit it and my servants shall dwell there. The descendants of Jacob and Judah will again live in the land promised them by God. But how much of the land will they possess? Well, in the very next verse, God supplies the answer through Isaiah. And Sharon shall be a pasture land for flocks, and the valley of Achor a resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. In Isaiah's day, Sharon was a sparsely populated area along the coast of the northern kingdom of Israel, while the valley of Achor was in the wilderness by the Jordan Valley. God's people will occupy the land from the western edge to the eastern edge. But Isaiah was speaking about more than just points on a compass. The Sharon Plain was wooded with areas that turned into uninhabitable swampland in the winter. It wasn't a place where shepherds would normally take sheep. The wilderness around the Valley of Achor was a place for shepherds, but it was also a place of danger. Wild animals roamed through these rugged hills searching for sheep that might just be out of sight from the shepherd. But Isaiah said a day was coming when the people would not only be back in the land, but would be there in safety. The Sharon Plain to the west would become pasture land, and the Valley of Achor to the east would be a place where a shepherd could allow his flock to rest without fear. The Valley of Achor is a valley with a sad history, but an amazing future. As we turn to walk back down to the bus, what can we take with us from this panorama? I think the key word we can carry along is hope. God's promise to Israel is that this valley of trouble will someday become a doorway of hope. And God has also given us a promise of hope. A day is coming when he's promised to wipe every tear from our eyes and to turn our sorrow into joy. Jesus reminded us of that hope in his final words to us from the book of Revelation. Yes, I'm coming soon. And our response should resonate with the hope voiced by the Apostle John. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Like Isaiah and Hosea, we're also watching for the day when we pass beyond this valley of trouble and through that doorway into God's eternal blessing. Come, Lord Jesus. Well, amen to that. And and maybe you're saying amen as well, thinking I've been through enough valleys of troubles. Well, appreciate Charlie's uh, devotional there. Would you like to email us and let us know how the program impacts your life? You can uh, send off that email to the land and the book at moody.edu. That's the land and the book at moody.edu. Want to say thanks to the team that puts this program together. Our producer, Dan Anderson, Charlie Dyer, our host, and yours truly, John Gager. Come back next week for an entirely fresh look at the Middle East here on The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.